1: I'm Sophie, and this is She's All Fat, the podcast for fat positivity, radical self-love, and chill vibes only. In this finale of our COVID-19 Staying In With SAF series, we're tackling the book we've been reading all season, Fearing the Black Body by Sabrina Strings. In order to do that, we're welcoming back editor-in-chief of Bitch Media, Yvette Dion. If you heard Finale and got sad, don't worry. We're still going to be in your feed every week. Stick around till the end of the episode to hear what's in store for the next few months of She's All Fat. Shout out to our Fat Babysitter's Club. That's what we're calling our sweet patrons who are part of our little August drive. Thank you so much. When you join our Patreon at $7 a month or above, you get access to our patrons-only Facebook group, weekly bonus minisodes, and now access to a Sunday stream to read the Babysitter's Club and talk about boys named Aaron with me this past sunday we met on facebook live and we read a chapter of the book we're reading which is the babysitter's club christy and the haunted house i think it was awesome it was very fun to hang out with the family come hang out with me there and uh, this next sunday we're gonna read another chapter and hang out become a patron before sunday to be part of the fun Okay, Fat Molly, our producer Lynn is going to cry if we don't get more voicemails. <laughs> She's very proud of the Google voice box she set up for SAF. So please, you can call into She's All Fat at 213-375-5023. Lynn wants to know, what took you so long? Just kidding. Tell us your quarantine obsessions. Tell us about your fave online fat community. Tell us about your fave fat TikTokers, ask me for face oil recommendations, whatever you want. We want to do a call in episode and we want you on it. So call 213-375-5023 and leave me a message. Ask me a question. Tell me a concern. Okay, here's the episode. I'm here once again with the wonderful, intelligent, beautiful, calming, event dion author and editor-in-chief of bitch media to talk about fearing the black body by dr sabrina strings welcome back to our show Thank you so much for having me again. I'm so honored to be here. I could go on forever as I did in the last episode about how much I look up to your work and love what you do. So I don't need to do that again. But for people who maybe didn't hear the last episode, can you briefly describe what it is you do and your connection to Fat Justice?
2: Um, Of course. So as you mentioned, I am a feminist, a Black feminist. I am a journalist and a pop culture critic. Um, And by happenstance, I say an author. That's that's just something I stumbled into, you know. (laughs) And I am currently the editor-in-chief of Bitch Media. In terms of my connection to fat justice, I am a fat Black person. I identify as a fat Black woman. I have been fat nearly my entire life. And so my connection to fat justice is both personal um, and political, trying to figure out where my body fits in a world that despises
1: fat people. Jeez. You always talk in a way that sounds like writing and I want to know how to do it. <laughs> you told me this last time too, and I've never forgotten it. It's true. I was just, th- I was like, man, she got some simile in there. She got like repetit, like, oh, just good at talking. So what have you been doing in the last month that has been nice? There's been a lot of hard stuff recently. But what has been one thing that you've done that's been nice for yourself?
2: That has been nice for myself? Well, I have a hard time turning my brain off in terms of just disconnecting from work and choosing to do something else. Even the things that I enjoy, like watching television or reading books, becomes work because I work at a pop culture publication. So something I've been trying really hard to do is to watch something that I know I'm not going to write about, whether that's a movie right now, I'm obsessed with reality television. (laughs) I am starting selling sunset and I just, Oh my gosh. What a show. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I also just finished a season of 90 day fiance before the 90 days, which has given me so much secondhand embarrassment just to be an American because while wow, we're an embarrassing group. So I've, I've just been really focused on doing that, just taking in something that I know is not going to become work.
1: I also relate to the feeling of curating what I'm, what you're putting in front of your eyeballs so that you can relax.
2: Yes. The only thing I will promo is that I am doing the Book Club for Zora, which is a, a medium publication by and for women of color. it is going to be next friday i believe at 11 a.m est on their instagram channel and we're going to be talking about sadia hartman's book wayward lives beautiful experiments and i'm excited that's amazing i'm excited i love talking about books
1: me too okay that's a great intro we're going to move on to the meat of it but before we do I want to, in case you've got this far and haven't thought about this yet, this has a big content warning for this episode. We're going to be talking about the ways that fatphobia and racism intersect. We're going to be talking about historical examples of both, including like historical slavery and all sorts of things that might be upsetting. So if you don't feel like you can handle that, then maybe listen later when you feel a little bit more up to it. Okay, let's get into the meat of it. (laughs) Of it. Okay, so when did you first hear this book? What drew you to it? Because I know you've read it before we read it. Yes, <laughs> this
2: is true. I received an email from the publicist for the book, which tends to happen with books in general because I curate our bitch reads for bitch media. Mm-hmm. So I received an email essentially saying this book is coming out and this is the release date. And I was like, ooh that's interesting. It immediately just struck every chord, not only because of the title, but the cover, everything about it just screamed, you need to read this. And so I got it and devoured it, to be honest.
1: Yeah. I remember hearing about it when it came out and it immediately went on my list. And then I really wanted to do this book club idea for the podcast and it aligned really well. I also hope that like people go back because now on the, on our website, com slash book club. We have readings for every chapter and like reflections and exercises you can do while reading it. And that's something that I'm gonna keep adding to because I've like, I've had to read it twice to try to understand everything in it. And I definitely don't understand everything in it, by the way. Like I don't have enough history degree to like understand everything in it. But I want to say to people who maybe tried it and felt intimidated by it, that you can engage with it at many different levels. And also that Yelly and I, Yelly, our junior producer, and I both talked about how this book was actually, for some reason, parts two and three were easier for me to follow than part one. I found yes. part one much harder to follow, again, because I don't have enough info. And so- If you want to skip ahead and then come back, that'd be okay, too. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, I wanted to just give a brief overview of what happens in the book so that people who haven't read it yet can get a little bit more out of our conversation. It is a very academic book, and it's set up like one. So the author, Sabrina Strings, she explains in her introduction how she's going to make an argument, and then she lays out her argument through three parts and then has a conclusion where she says, I made the argument. It's not like a pop history book. It's not like a historical nonfiction book. She has a thesis and she's made a point. The best thing to do with this kind of book is always to read the introduction a couple times first because the introduction has like a little preview (laughs) of the whole argument there. So if you have the book on page six and seven, That's where like I went back to that a couple times when I was reading it because she lays out her whole argument there. And if you get a little bit lost in the weeds, you can go back to that for guidance for like where you are in the argument. So just for a little thesis of the book, I'm going to quote from her here. She says, I argue that two critical historical developments contributed to a fetish for svelteness and a phobia about fatness, the rise of the transatlantic slave trade and the spread of Protestantism. Racial scientific rhetoric about slavery linked fatness to greedy Africans and religious discourse suggested that overeating was ungodly. So those are the two aspects that she's tracing through this book. I also want to quote her, man, I told you, I was like, I'm going to get into academic mode. And I was like, I knew, I knew what would happen. Um, But that's how this book wants to be engaged with. Okay. So there's a really good interview with Sabrina Strings on Food Psych, which is another podcast we love. We'll play a clip from it here. So when Sabrina Strings is talking about how she figured out what to write for in this book, she basically talks about how it's really clear in like the 20th century, the progress of idolizing thinness and idolizing whiteness and stuff. She begins with women's magazines and goes backwards in time.
3: Essentially what I decided to do was like a reverse genealogy. So I began with these women's magazines and I said, well, who are they referencing? Okay, and the people that these individuals had referenced, who did they reference, right? And I sort of like had to make my way backward until I actually could land effectively in the Renaissance.
1: So this book starts in the Renaissance and goes through the 20th century, tracing art, philosophy, other cultural touch points, medicine, the way that fatness and blackness are talked about in all those fields until we get to today. And that's the book. Was that a good summary, do you think? A Pretty fair? That's summary. That's a great summary. It, you're right. It absolutely is an academic text. I think it
2: was designed for fellow academics who want to study fat phobia in some respect. And so you're absolutely right about the intro being the place that you go to over and over again to see where you are in the argument.
1: Yeah, she has a lot of you know, especially in the first part, there's a lot of footnotes and there's like, or yes, yes, end notes. And those can be really helpful to read. But they also just whenever I'm engaging with the text like this, I just end up with 50 more like books. To exactly. From yeah. 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 You nodded when I said that I found part one harder to engage with. So I was wondering if you could talk about uh, what your thoughts are on that on part one. So part one is called The Beauty of the Robust. And it's basically about like the Renaissance, essentially, and beauty standards in the Renaissance. What did you think of it? What were your main, your main takeaways from that part?
2: My primary takeaway is how long the history of fat phobia is. I think so often when we are doing this work now, we start in 1960, like the first Fat in Central Park, and we move from 1960 until now. I appreciated the fact that Dr. Strings went back that far into history to show the true origins of fat phobia. It was confusing for me because I had never gone back that far before. And yeah. I'm unfamiliar with the Renaissance. Like Same. I was I was reading this, like, did I learn about this in world studies? Or <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like I don't this is not really my era in which I've studied anything. The the furthest back I've ever gone is the antebellum period. So it was confusing because I was unfamiliar with the touchstones that she referenced. And so I agree that it was helpful when I went back to to reread, it was helpful to go two, three, and then back to one. To
1: actually understand the argument that's being made there. Because again, I'm just not familiar that's what I did too. I mean, especially because after reading two and three, it became more clear to me that in one, she's setting up the contrast to the ways that Europeans' treatment and Americans' like treatment of race really started affecting things as soon as the slave trade started happening. Exactly. Before that, it's all the stuff about Italy and like this and that and medium-sized people and like whatever. And then I think <laughs> like reading the first two chapters, I was like, Wow, I've forgotten everything I learned in school. Like
3: I can't <laughs> understand I this.
2: <laughs> That's how I felt, and I, I get in hindsight when I went back to reread. Yeah, exactly. Why that section is so important? Yeah, because it really does set up the trajectory for everything that comes after it. But yes, you, you have
1: to start later to get that. I didn't get it at first. I was like, I don't, I don't understand. Yes, same. <laughs> Okay, so on page 72, which is the beginning of part two, yes. which is called Race, Weight, God, and Country. So basically, I'm reading this sentence that kind of sums up what we just said and like helped me understand the context of the part one. So page 72, Dr. String says, theories about race, quote, were to be read and expanded upon by subsequent scientists and philosophers, several of whom were deeply invested in maintaining or extending the slave trade, i.e., The people who were talking about how we look at race had a vested interest in continuing enslavement of Black people. And these ideas were created and not based in anything. As we saw in the chapter before, the ideas of beauty weren't really based on very much at all. They were just like harmony, Renaissance ideals, like grace, whatever. And then they began to be created in this very specific way to make slavery more acceptable, appealing, what have you.
2: Exactly. They were, they were attempting to make people feel okay with enslaving another human being.
1: Yeah. Like you needed justification for that. <laughs> exactly. Like one thing I didn't know from the first part, there's a lot of like Renaissance paintings talked about in that first part and pointed out in a couple of them where Artists who, like, hadn't ever seen Black people in person would paint Black people with European features. Yes. Or, like, like just white people, but then paint them brown, basically. Mm-hmm. They are just painting a white person in different costumes. Exactly. Oh, my gosh. And then to trace from that to then when artists started coming into contact with people who were, like, enslaved people – then the the art starts getting more trying to prove a point in a specific way instead of just being like clearly the artist thinking of just a Black character that they've heard of or something like that.
2: Yes. It was also striking to me how much art reflects our social conditions. I hear that all the time in our current moment of The damage that it causes psychologically, for instance, to see Black people being killed on viral videos over and over and over again, like that causes actual psychological damage. But this book and that part in particular just reminded me of how long that history is and how art can be used to reinforce the very systems that we're trying to challenge and dismantle.
1: Yes. That's such a good point. It also helped. There's a part in there about Shakespeare.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I had seen like Twitter factoids or whatever about uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, which is it's described in here. One of the characters is talked about in like very ra- in a very racialized way. But I hadn't like I'd never taken a class, even though I am a comp lit major. I've never had a class where that was really explained to me in the way that it was in this book, you know? Yes.
2: Yes. And ever. I thought about the fact that I was in a midsummer night's dream. Yeah. <laughs> but oh I was my in God. that play and i never as much as Shakespeare's revered and taught across schools even now never had the conversation about Shakespeare and
1: race ever. Yeah. And I think for example when we read Othello we talked about it, but I do think it was a lot of it was from a very like modern point of view, you know, which like doesn't apply
3: at exactly. that time. Exactly.
1: And that was really interesting. The other part of that that I wanted to bring up of the those first two chapters is when Dr. Strings is talking about how when Europe, basically apart from Italy, started first being in more contact with Black people, the stereotype of Black people was to be like tiny and like underfed, which I yes. did not know was like used to be a thing. I had no idea because that's not that's not at all what we're taught. Yeah, it's not now. Whatsoever. It's not what it is now. Yeah. Not even now. No. And and she traces how that stereotype changed like mm-hmm. over time to like the opposite is the next two book parts of it. It just really underscores for me again how created the ways that people are racialized are.
2: Yes. Racialized is, is the right word. It's not literally about individual people, not at all. Per se, we really are racialized to create an inferior class in order at the time to justify enslavement.
1: Yeah. It really was like, oh, it doesn't matter what, like they could say like, oh, Black people all tend to be tiny or like, oh, Black people tend to be large. The point is just like, they're different. They're different. It doesn't matter like what exactly they say. Exactly. Okay. So part two, race, weight, God, and country shifts to talking about... English identity, like British identity, and American identity, as well as talking about this term that I really liked, the aesthetic, aesthetic, A-S-C-E-T-I-C. For the listeners, what that term is used to mean is, like, this idea that being wan and thin and pallid is, like, actually a sign of, like, being smart, (laughs) and, like, that being thin and frail is being closer to God, essentially, like very Victorian fainting couch, essentially. And then the end of this section is the thinness as American exceptionalism, which chapter five was really where I started to be like, okay, now I feel like I understand where we are because it's more about America. So I'm more situated in the cultural milieu, so to say. Yes. But I found all of that really interesting, especially how Dr. Strings ties the line really really neatly between the protestant religious movements in the US, the philosophical movements and then how she like brings that all the way to part 3 and then we get into how it's affected doctors. Like it really is a very cohesive argument.
2: Very. From section 2 through section 3, it's as clear as a whistle. There's no way that you can come out of that not understanding the argument that she's making. Of course, there are people who will attempt to refute it for their own fat phobic reasons, but the argument is distinct and it's clear.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So in this part, especially, I wanted to talk about the connections between whiteness and like elevating white women that has to do with like necessarily oppressing Black women. I think this section Makes that clear through specifically American culture in a way that hasn't been laid out for me in this like chain-linked kind of way so clearly before and the way that Dr. Strings ties together like Kellogg and his like crazy <laughs> like serial stuff with the church like born-again camps and like all that stuff and the ladies' magazines, which I've always been interested in the history of those like ladies' magazines, um, really... Shows how in American society, like I just said, white bodies, white female bodies are like elevated, not just because of like our current idea of racism or a lot of people's current idea of racism, which is like white people don't like black people. But it's like in order to have our American nation, we have to venerate white women is like the thought there.
2: Absolutely. And in order to racialize a body, you have to create a hierarchy. Yes, exactly. Otherwise... Who is being oppressed in a situation? Who can be exploited? Who will accept that exploitation because they've internalized the idea? There has to be an establishment of a hierarchy. Like there has to be a body of people, in this case, white thin women who privilege or benefit from a system, who are privileged within a system. That was made very clear to me that so often we talk about interpersonal choices She makes it very clear that this is the foundation of the country in which we inhabit. Like we never really had a choice because we are born into it from the very beginning. Like it's the literal foundation for the founding of the country.
1: Yes. I think it also underscored for me again, how myopic the American view can be not only in terms of this, but just in general, I think it's really hard to remember that like the rest of the world doesn't necessarily think like we do or like act like we do because we act. So everything's about us all the time. Absolutely. And that's the reason why I was talking to you before we started
2: recording about 90 day fiance. That's the reason why it is so enlightening to me because the, Americans on that show in particular, and I'm watching the before the 90 days part of the franchise are so entitled that is embedded in us. And they are not that much different from me. Like when I'm watching it, I'm like, Oh yeah, I I might've done that. Mm -hmm. When you recognize that the foundation of this country is rotten in that way, all the rest of it makes sense. All of the individual behaviors make sense because we've literally, been
1: indoctrinated in a system that operates this way, and then had to figure out our place in it. I found it interesting that Dr. Strings addresses in a very academic way the argument that I always see on social media in a much less sophisticated way because there's like <laughs> a part where she's like, yes, white women are were also hurt by this system <laughs> like right. It's like, oh my God, she's doing the thing where people have to be like, yes. Feminism is good for men, too. Like, yes. And being intersectional is good for white people, too. (laughs) Like, yes,
2: that's one of the very first things that I learned in graduate school is that when you're creating an argument that that is this complex and that people will attempt to poke holes in, you have to fortify the argument. In, yeah. every, in every possible way. So you have to account for all of the potential caveats that could be brought up to poke a hole in the argument. And I see Dr. Strings doing that quite a bit in this book, but particularly when she gets to the part of the book where she's talking about what happens in the United States.
1: Yes. Because
2: we do not want to face ourselves in the mirror.
1: Yes. Just as a, a common condition of being American. So yes, so one quote that I wrote down that sums up what we were just talking about from that section, the racialized female body became legible, a form of text from which racial superiority and inferiority were read, which I found that like a really powerful way of putting that, just really forcing the reader to see that the Black female body in this context is like something that all this stuff is projected on. And that the whole system is depending on, everything else is depending on these understandings about Black women's bodies being held true by the rest of society.
2: Yeah, it, it reminded me a lot of, I don't know if you've read, I believe the historian's name is Stephanie Jones Rogers. I will double check that. But her book is called They Were Her Property. And oh, it was yes. about white women slave owners who it's set up much in the same way in the fact that it's an academic text as well and it's written to reach other scholars. It just happened to get past the walls of the academy yes. into to like mainstream press and, and the way in which we read those books. But essentially she makes the argument that white women were as involved in the enslavement of black people in the United States as any other group. And they were equally as brutal And their ultimate goal was was providing enough capital to take care of themselves and like generations of their families. And in order to do that, you have to racialize a group of people. There's no other way in which to justify it. You have to make it seem as if enslaved black people were okay with their conditions because they felt like they were taken care of better on a plantation and they would be out on their own. All of that plays, I think, into Dr. Strings's idea that fat phobia is literally the foundation by which the United States was created. Like, you have to have that in order to create a capitalist society, in order to have a group of people to exploit, in order to have a country that thrives in this kind of economic system.
1: Yes. I also found that in that part about the ladies magazines and talking yes! about how, like that part was so interesting to me so basically the the book talks about all these victorian and older periodicals or magazines for women and the ways that weight and appearance are like talked about in them people like in this book talking about the women who wrote fat phobic things mm-hmm. dr strings is constantly like well we don't know what they thought in their brain but we have we know what they wrote or i'm like my gosh, like, I'm sure that she's like, people are gonna be like, well, how do you know they were racist? Because that's always. Exactly.
2: Yeah. <sighs> just so annoying. You can't begin to decipher their moral character. Right. You know, as if racism is, well, in some respects, it is something you judge morally.
1: But beyond that, it's more in behavior, indeed. Well, but it's not judged on your secret morals inside your heart. Right. It's just like. <laughs> Yeah. You know? Yeah. Part of that too is when I was writing
2: my book, Lifting As We Climb, a reviewer said to me, like someone who interviewed me, that they felt as if I was not attempting to try to decide whether like women like Susan B. Anthony were racist. And what I say is that I did not want to bring my 21st century ideals or worldview into a book about the 18th century or 19th century you know it was a different time and so you have to consider okay holistically like the motive and what was said and what was done but also not try to go deeper than that because you just risk projecting what you think onto historical figures which is it doesn't matter it, it really doesn't, doesn't matter.
1: <laughs> but it was something I, I thought about in hindsight like oh yeah I did that too It's just like, yeah, I mean, I always think that when, like, that argument comes up, it's so frustrating. It's like, but why does that matter? Why do you care? Like, why does that have anything to do with what we're talking about? It's tough. It's a a tough, tightrope to walk. Yeah, of course. Well, especially for, like, you and Dr. Strings, like, someone whose identity is wrapped up in what they're writing about as well, which makes you, like – really want to have your ducks in a row for what, you know, like the attacks are going to be. Exactly. Trying to, trying to foresee the counter argument before it comes. Yes, exactly. There's too many interesting parts of part two to get into. But one thing that Dr. Strings talks about is like the connection between a low goodness diet, basically like a really boring diet and the connection that was made at the time to like spirituality like starving yourself, like being good, being pure, whatever. And also that includes talking about vegetarianism at the time. And that also made me think about like some of the modern day ways that I have seen food justice world fail to include Like intersectionality or to be inclusive of people who don't have all the money to be vegan in the way that like it just made me think about that modern connection
2: it made me think a lot about I want to make sure I'm saying her name right but it's like Catherine of Siena who literally starved herself and then became a saint oh my god that is that's the way in which we think about thinness Yes. That is something to be elevated and glorified and a piece of sainthood to be able to have that level of godly discipline. When in actuality, there's nothing in the world that makes that okay. But for people who are trying to justify not treating their bodies with care, like to actually listen to what your body believes that it needs and gives it that... If you're trying to justify not doing that, of course it becomes a form of sainthood. I also thought, and I don't, I can't remember if Dr. Strings touched on this, but I also thought about the fact that food for Black communities, particularly in the United States and across the diaspora at large, is a communal building block. It was one of the only times in which enslaved people were able to come together and commune together was over a meal once or twice a week. To demonize that and to turn it into a sin against God is once again to deny black people humanity, something that, that brings us closer together and makes us feel as if we are closer to God by simply communing with one another through prayer and and otherwise becomes another way of demonizing and denying humanity. That kind of broke me, to be honest, as I read that part, like uh we can't do anything we can't have any joy because it's going to be used as a way to deny us basic human rights yeah so frustrating
0: Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash achieve today.
1: Here's a little shout out for one of our favorite podcasts that's also giving us a shout-out. Inappropriate questions from CBC Podcasts is a show about questions, ones that might be uncomfortable. From how old are you to did you lose weight? and Can I speak to your manager? Hosts Elena Hudgens Lyle, a queer millennial, and Harvinder Wadwa, a dad. Talk to people who have been asked these questions to find out where they come from and learn more respectful ways to get curious. You can subscribe to Inappropriate Questions on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so then there's part three. And in part three, part three is a breeze to read because it's all the stuff we all already know about how doctors have medicalized weight, the ways in which that happens, the ways insurance companies and sugar companies and literally like everyone pushed in to make things be the way that they are now and how it has nothing to actually do with very much one of the things that i want our audience to know if you haven't read the book is that there's like a very infuriating part at the end where there's like a woman who's done a bunch of studies about quote-unquote obesity like in her lit review which is when you look at a bunch of studies and write about what the studies say altogether. she says like huh seems like actually like people are okay and all the other doctors were like what the hell like no obesity is bad <laughs> <laughs> and then Doctor Strings is like, um, weirdly, this woman had like fifty years in the field, and the person who wrote the paper that said obesity is bad had like no years in the field. But mm, interesting. Of course. Who's surprised? Who's surprised? Right.
2: That part of the book is so striking to me because it makes all of this so plain. So often when we are talking about the impact of fat phobia. Particularly when we're talking about the impact of fat phobia on medical care, it sounds like a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it does. It right? does it's like, it's like we're trying to explain and like pointing at this whiteboard, like, do you see this? Do you see this? It sounds very anti-vax
1: sometimes. Right. I'm like, it's not
2: that though. It's not that. Like this is really happening. And Doctor Strings just makes it so plain and so clear that it's happening. And the argument is bulletproof. Again, like going back to fortifying your argument as an academic, but it's a bulletproof argument. It's clear. Anyone, even if you hadn't read the first two parts of the book can come into that part and fully get it and understand it. That's when the book to me really became for a more mainstream audience where the literal audience shifted from I'm talking to other academics to I'm talking to the fat person who has to go to the doctor to remind them that they are not losing it. You know, like there is nothing wrong with them. This is really
3: happening. And here's the history to prove it.
1: Yes. Okay. Here's another clip from the food
3: psych episode. Another book that is highly worth reading, a fantastic book called Killer Fat by a professor named Natalie Boero. she talks about this very phenomenon that you just mentioned, which is that the people who were at the table helping to determine, okay, well, what is needed in order for us to be healthy? And so what do we want to include in our healthy people report for Americans going forward? Many of the people who are at the table were actually involved with groups like Weight Watchers or Jenny Craig. And so, of course, it makes sense for these people who are industry lobbyists to suggest that, well... Weight loss is actually the key to good health because it enriches them. And, you know, at this point, it's not even just these major weight loss corporations or doctors, but it's also Instagram celebrities like Khloe Kardashian, who who knows how much money she's making for promoting this flat tummy Uh. team.
1: So even though I think it's widely known at this point, kind of top level stuff of this, your average person will be like, yeah, Khloe Kardashian shouldn't sell flat tummy tea or whatever. The average person sees the top level of that kind of connection between like capitalism industry and weight loss being pushed. They maybe don't believe or haven't seen like I think most people see doctors as like they have this just knowledge that's just true. Yes, we put him on a pedestal. Yes. Mm -hmm. And this book makes clear that that's not the case. That's not how, quote unquote, obesity came to be talked about. In fact, a lot of our ideas about this came from Renaissance shit. And then slavery is basically the end of the book. And then it's like, so how can you think that? And then you end the book and you're like, wow. How did I think that? How did I think that? Let me say, killer fat
2: changed my life. Really? It really did. That book, at the time that I read it, I was still trying to come to terms with fat phobia as an idea, as a concept, as a, a way that my body has been penalized within a system. Killer Fat made it all so clear to me. Like I cannot recommend that book enough. I talk about it all the time. I cite it all the time. Dr. Boero does such amazing work. And I think that that book in conversation with this book just really makes you feel like this is not a conspiracy. It seems that way because it's so blatantly obvious. You have to tell yourself like there's no way this is happening because how is it happening so in public and nothing is being done about it? Like it's just
1: allowed to be. It is interesting like pulling back from the book a little bit like looking at it as a whole. I was able to really like see from this book how a lot of the things I have learned about literature from the various times that she goes over, which is pretty much all of my education, right? Renaissance yes. through today is pretty yes. much what I've read. All of my education has been without illuminating this context. And any historical models I had, especially when I was younger, like when I was a kid and didn't really know about systemic racism (laughs) because I was a little white girl who didn't like know about this stuff. I just like hope that other people who are white women like me read this and are able to see like how much of what I think has been shaped by stuff that I didn't know the full context of. (laughs) So it was a good reminder for me, even though I try really hard to always be like, I don't know anything, like I could learn, I learn something new every day, you know, but even the base levels of things like I like historical fiction, maybe I need to look at some more of that historical fiction and think about when it's set and like what they talk about in it in terms of the fashion and who's at court and why and like what's good, you know what I mean? That's like a silly example, but just like the way that culture has indoctrinated me as a white woman to think in certain ways about beauty is contextualized so well in this book
2: yes yes and it it does a really good job of making at least for me see that nothing about this is my own fault Yes. You know, like because I'm I talk all the time about being on a heart failure journey and going from cardiologist to cardiologist because I'm still facing incompetence. (laughs) We're talking about a life and death scenario. This book just reinforced that none of that is my fault and that there is a historical foundation for this and that I am right to continue to advocate for myself. Like that is what I hope people take most out of this is not only now we all know this history pretty intimately because Dr. Strings does such a good job, but we can also hearken back to it in
1: our everyday lives, you know, even when we're not reading an academic text. I hope another thing people might take from it would be just the idea that like the racism or divides in meaning not divides, like an opinion divides, meaning like, why do more black people have worse health outcomes than white people? Why do these things happen? It's not just like, well, it just happened that like just turned out that way. It's absolutely not that, which I think like most people who are listening to this podcast would already agree with. But like, it, it just really helps make clear things that I think a lot of people for a long time have just been accepting of the way things are. Just reinforcing the status quo. Yes. What other big picture ideas did you want to pull away from this book? I would say the other big
2: idea is that you, you touched on this a bit, but that we should interrogate everything that we consume. We should interrogate every TV show we watch, every book we read, what we're taught in schools. So often it's as if people hate those who are pushing back against that or challenging it or thinking about it more intellectually as these quote unquote social justice warriors that just want to cancel everything. Yes. But (laughs) the reality is by challenging what it is that you've learned you start to realize that it really is an indoctrination tool. Yes. And that that is
1: the first step really for unlearning. And not in the way, not in like a Donnie Darko indoctrination. Not no, no, like no. that.
2: Not like you're being, I mean, you could say maybe like an American cult, but not in the way in which we think. <laughs> not like a teenage
1: boy who'd be like, it's all a scheme, man. Like, no, not like that. Not like <laughs> that.
2: But like, in terms of thinking about the fact that. It's not an accident, for instance, and this is my favorite example, but it's not an accident that you only learn about three black figures during Black History Month. That's intentional. Yeah. It's intentional yeah. to teach a history that is populated predominantly by white people without ever once touching on colonization, for instance, yes. or on capitalism as an oppressive economic tool That's intentional. And so questioning instead of just taking pop culture as something fun, you know, just something you just pick up a magazine because you need something glossy to look at is to really think about the messages that are contained within them and also the messages that are
1: intentionally excluded and the the motivations for that. Another thing that struck me from this book was how much of what she talks about, and I think she notes this a couple times, but how many of the things she analyzes are basically elite white culture and how much the culture of several hundred white people with a lot of money at any point in history has determined like huge swaths of the way our culture exists. Yes. Yes. How we're
2: educated So much is determined by what happened in the Renaissance period, a period I can't even recall who the most prominent people of that time are, you know? I don't know.
1: Just watch Ever After. That is pretty much the rest,
2: (laughs) (laughs) Or Drunk History.
1: Yeah, there you go. That's the extent of it. She doesn't even talk about slavery, really. She just talks about how things were talked about among the elite sets of American and British society for the second part, basically. And that also is still true now. That like, again, not in a conspiracy way, but there are like very few groups of people who like set taste in various ways. And it's all rich white people. Yep. Like in her epilogue, this sentence struck me. She said, one question prompted by these findings may be whether racial and ethnic others and especially black women knew about the weight-based aesthetic distinctions that were crafted using them as the target. I read that and I was like, oh my God, yeah. She didn't even go into like, what was this like for Black people experiencing it? It's literally just like the creation of it among white elites who didn't even know Black people. There's just so much more to dig into with this topic. She could have spent a whole chapter of this book being like, and I didn't even talk about. Exactly. Her epilogue could have been all the things that she did not touch on in the book.
2: Yeah. Truly. But I, I think that she, in a roundabout way, is encouraging us to interrogate our taste. Like, what are you drawn to? Why are you drawn to that? What does it reflect about the way you've been socialized? Yes. That to me is really useful. Like, I I very selfishly hope that she writes a part two of some sort that dives into exactly what you were saying. Like, what was the impact of all of this on the people who were experiencing it, who were on the other side of it? But this provides a really great academic primer For how everything came to be, which is sad. I
1: know. But it's a really good book. I highly recommend. Very big time. Big time. Big time. Great book. Honestly, great book. we touched on this a little bit, but in general, I think a lot about storytelling. That's how Mm -hmm. like I first was introduced to writing. And that's what I like about improv. And that's what I like about doing social media stuff. (laughs) What kind of narrative are we creating and why and what effect does it have? And the way that Dr. Strings talks about storytelling, she doesn't ever like use that phrase, really. But from the book, as we were just saying, You can very easily understand how the stories we tell ourselves, how our nation's stories, how even our individual episodes of TV or like chapters of books you're reading right now or whatever are connected to this in general. And in addition to that, I would encourage everybody to think about that when you're reading things like newspapers, even, or magazines, like the same way that Godey's lady's book or whatever is a text that Dr. Strings could use to talk about that time period. So is Seventeen. So is Cosmo today. And Bitch Media is great for understanding all that stuff. <laughs> I Thanks. would say shout out to Bitch Media. <laughs> Thanks. But no, the lineage of that is alive and its well.
2: It seems as if magazines in particular have had a renaissance. So we want to be the most inclusive medium that we could possibly be. But that's maybe in the last five years. That's not a long term social project. (laughs) You know, when you realize that the profits are aligned with being more inclusive, suddenly it becomes a mission and every organization is a mission driven organization. So I would encourage people to go back and look at, say, Cosmo in 2001. Take the walk down memory lane to figure out how magazines have intentionally evolved and what that signals about what was happening in the world, you know, because there's always a connection there. Magazines or or pop culture in general doesn't just shift for the sake of it. There's usually a bottom line and usually that bottom line involves money.
1: Yeah. And what story are they telling you? What narrative about you do they want you to believe in order to pay this money. What spot do they want you to think you have and how will that funnel money to them? Exactly. Okay. So to wrap up, thank you so much for being on this episode with me. Once again, I want to cut out everything I said and just have everything you said. (laughs) You you always sound so smart. (laughs) And so you just make the point that I was trying to circle around for years and you just say it you're just good at it. Thank you. So follow <laughs> Yvette on every social, follow bitch media, support independent media. And if you haven't already purchase Fearing the Black Body from a black owned bookstore, we have a bunch in the links in our show notes um, and on our website, educate yourself and equip yourself with the tools to dismantle racism and fat phobia. Do you have anything you want to say to the family before we go? We're go- This is the end of our season. We did it. We oh, to the it's season. the end of
2: the season. <laughs> yeah. Well, this season has been amazing. And I thank just thank you. you for curating this kind of community that I, I'm sure that you put a lot of people on a journey to just better understanding themselves and their bodies.
1: That's so, so nice. So congratulations on another season. Thank you. Congratulations to me to having you on <laughs> the last episode of the season. <laughs> well, thanks so much for me. having me. It's an honor every time. Good. Thank you, Yvette. Thank you. And that's our show. As promised, we have some news about our in-between season between season five and season six. It's not going to be another year before you hear from us again. (laughs) Though, holding space for the literal pandemic that delayed season five, I mean, the season five you heard staying in was not the season we thought we'd be putting out for you. We were basically halfway through making a different season five when COVID got to North America and we realized we needed to shift gears. And then we were ready to launch our new, new season at the beginning of June when the police murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd sparked the unprecedented wave of anti-racist Black Lives Matter protests that are still going strong to this day. We realized then that the pod needed to center Black liberation and the fight for fat justice in more sustained, concrete ways. I wish I had done that before. I'm especially proud of our episode with Sophie Williams at Official Millennial Black and both episodes this season with Yvette. I hope that our listeners revisit those interviews and take full advantage of Sophie's and Yvette's brains in your own anti-racist journeys. If you're going to share any SAF episodes with someone, maybe share one of those. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Remember that original season 5 I mentioned? Those never-released episodes have somehow become this frozen-in-time artifact of the time before the international pandemic crisis currently Guiding our entire lives. It's like a time capsule. Actually, that's what we're calling these episodes an SAF time capsule. And instead of having a break between seasons like we usually do, we're going to unlock our little time capsule and share these episodes with you. I'm really excited to do this. We love being in your podcast feed every week, and I'm really proud of these episodes and glad that you're getting to hear them finally. We have guests like Ellen Kemper from Palehound, Militant Baker, Jess, and even a mailbag with me and my boyfriend, Victor. And all the while, we'll be working on season six. Season six, can you believe? So the next two weeks, we have some mini sewed treats for you. And then in October, we'll give you the keys to our time capsule season. And then after that, season six. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this season and the work we've been doing, please support us on Patreon. Your monthly donations help me pay Lynn and Yelly and keep putting out Profat Publica. <laughs> our Patreon is also where you can get access to a bonus minisode every week. This season, we did a sleepover series with all our guests and we have big ideas for next season's Patreon minisodes and beyond. Speaking of our Patreon, producing SAF in COVID times is made possible by our beloved patrons. Special thanks to Sarah D, Emily Hare, Ellie Matthews, Megan Murph, Maya Wolf, Libby Monaghan, or Monaghan, Elizabeth Hashem, Jessica Troy, Molly Bogart, and Daniela Jacqueline. Thank you all so much. This week, your call to action is to share what you learned from reading Fearing the Black Body like literally share the book. Here are some ideas. If you have a copy of Fearing the Black Body that you're willing to part with, DM us on Insta and we'll connect you with someone in the family who's looking for a copy. That way we can contribute to the postal service and uplift Dr. Strings' work. If you wanna hold on to your copy or if it's an ebook like mine, I challenge you to buy this book for someone in your life who would benefit from having it. Make sure to buy from an independent black owned bookstore, linked in the show notes. You can also direct anyone reading the book to our website, she'sallfatpod.com/ bookclub book club, for our chapter exercises and more readings. Yelly had the idea of writing to your local library and requesting that they get a copy of Fearing the Black Body. That way, anyone can have access. It's really easy to do so. There's usually a form on the site, depending on which kind of library system you're in. You can also always write an email. If you do that, take a picture of your email and we will post it on our socials. Or if you figure out good instructions for people how to do this in your area, we'll also post this. Lastly, keep sharing your thoughts and reflections with the family. If you're a little behind our reading schedule, and would still like to chat or reflect, send us an email at fyi at shesallfatpod.com or leave us a voicemail. Learning doesn't stop here. There's no fat liberation without black liberation. Okay, that's our season. She's All Fat was created by me, Sophie Carter-Kahn and April K. Quio, who graduated. We are an independent production. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash When you pledge to be a supporter, you'll get all sorts of goodies and extra content. Please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super important in making sure people find the show so we can grow the family. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the stuff we mentioned today. And don't forget to send us your questions at fyi at she'sallfatpod.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 213-375-5023 and we might even play it on the pod. Our episode ads are done in partnership with ACAST. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can get started at acast.com. Our theme music was composed and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our website was designed by jesse fish and our logo is by hannah sanger lynn barbera co-produced and edited this episode Yelly cruz is our magical junior producer our thin crony forever is maria bertel i'm our host and co-producer our facebook instagram and twitter handles are at she's all fat pod you can find the show on apple podcasts spotify stitcher google play and wherever else you get your podcasts stay safe we love you
0: E-D-E-R-M dot com.